This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hello, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge, Season 4, Episode 13. Today, we are talking about differentiation for different readers, and Mary and I have brought in a much more knowledgeable guest than ourselves on this topic, um, and a huge role model for us, Nancy Young. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. And can I just say a few thanks before you go on? I, I want to thank everybody who's, who's listening, but I do want to reach out and thank to the, the teachers who've been teaching during this pandemic and teaching in school and online and masks and, you know, wow, what a time. So thank you, everybody. And um, thanks for being here. And thanks, uh, Mary Shannon, for inviting me. And how about they're still listening and learning and wanting to further their own practice on their free time, even after being so burned out after a really difficult couple of years of teaching. Oh, yeah, that was part of my thanks, too. I just forgot to say it. Thanks for being willing to learn. I'm such a learner and I love the learning that all of this is bringing. So thank you. I I echo those sentiments, too. It's been um, amazing and I think that sometimes we find rejuvenation when we're learning, and I think that's really useful and really helpful. Sometimes it's just taking that that first step, and hopefully um, we can move past to have a rejuvenating couple of um, months ahead for the summer that's um, on the way, and teachers can actually really do some things that are um, good self-care and Anyway, I think we should get our podcast started today. We're so excited to have this special guest. So Nancy, I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about your literacy experience and the work that you're doing. And to our previous uh, listeners, you may also remember that this season we have spoken about um, the ladder of reading and writing and Miss Nancy Young here is the guru of that ladder. So we can't wait to... um, learn about what you're up to these days. Thank you for being here, Nancy. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to, I'm always excited to share and uh, meet wonderful people like you. Um, I have a very background. Uh, I'm not as young as I'd like to be, so <laughs> it might take the whole podcast to explain, but um, in a nutshell, I've worked with uh, almost every type of special need uh, uh, out there um, in the classroom, in the community. I started off as an educational assistant right after my first degree in special ed. Um, And um, um, at at one point after I got my B.Ed., I I planned to go into gifted education, which is what you know, I think lends a different, I I can see things maybe a little differently from some people uh, in terms of where we're going with this and meeting the needs of all. Um, And so uh, I have the gifted background. And when I, uh, my own children were in a gifted program and uh, they didn't get there right away, um, you know, I have experienced the Uh, feeling as a parent of my children not getting what they need in school. Uh, So, uh, but when they went to a gifted program, I noticed that 
there were children who were in the program who were really struggling to read and write. And I thought, well, this is interesting, you know, because my children were both in the dark green. They were both reading before school. And so I was really intrigued uh, about the, um, the fact that a child could be very, very bright and have difficulty learning to uh, read and write. And so that journey took me into learning about dyslexia, which I didn't learn about in my degree. And I didn't learn actually anything about teaching reading, uh, apart from, you know, let them enjoy reading. Uh, so um, my journey in dyslexia gave me, uh, I think, a really good background. I as I said, I love to learn. So I started to dig into everything and, um, you know, flew myself to Boston to meet Marianne Wolf and, you know, communicated with many researchers and took different trainings. And uh, so then when I, I did my master's um, with the plan to support teachers because, oh, I forgot I was had my own private practice by then uh, teaching children who were um, um, having difficulty reading in school and not all of them had dyslexia for some of them it was an instructional issue based on my observation and um, so I uh, wanted to I just knew that I couldn't help everybody one-on-one uh, -on -one, so I wanted to work with teachers and um, completed my master's in special ed about 10 years ago. And my focus in my master's was uh, not just dyslexia, but using movement uh, to enhance learning. And we can talk about that later. And so I've been consulting and it was during my master's that I created the very first version of my ladder. And uh, somehow it went viral in 2017. And so my world changed because my work and my name uh, has um, really uh, gotten out there. And uh, so now I'm uh, giving PD all over the place, you know, working with different projects with people. It's just been an involvement. Nothing was planned. I... <laughs> My children say, mom, you got to plan what you're going to do in your business. I'm, are you kidding? I have no time. <laughs> so it's a constant involvement. I just, every day I get up and go, okay, we're rolling. Uh, so, but it's also brought, brought amazing experiences. I, uh, I keep saying I'm a learner, but I love the learning. I love the, I'm constantly reading the research. I'm constantly thinking about um, how I taught, um, how I'm advising teachers in, in terms of supporting them and constantly questioning. It's, but that to me is what makes it really interesting. There's so much we still need to know. There's so much more research we still need to know. So that is um, what I'm doing this um, last month was exceptionally busy with presentations. Uh, oh, and I'm doing my doctorate at the same time with a focus on 2E. Uh, so twice exceptional learners. And I'm actually focusing on not just dyslexia, but children who have, um, um, who are gifted and have ADHD. Uh, I think this is an area that is also, oh my goodness, so many areas that we need to focus on. But yeah, so I'm doing my doctorate and consulting and talking to people like you too. And uh, yeah, just having fun. That's wonderful. Nancy, this is so exciting. And I think that, um, our listeners are really appreciative of you and your time that you're dedicating to share the knowledge that you're gaining because it's um, 
once we can share it, you're right. That's how we reach the most learners. You have your individual practice and then you teach teachers and parents and um, the work really spreads. So um, we're grateful for you. So thank you so much. I just have one student right now. Uh, at one point, I, I was focusing on teachers and I didn't have any students. And um, a parent approached me and I thought, oh, you know, this sounds so interesting. And I, I realized how much I missed being with children. Uh, my own children have grown up. And uh, so my one student once a week is, um, she's been with me for a while. So we've transitioned to once a week and um, it, it, I get my, my kid fix. Uh, but I also am constantly, again, in working with my one student, having to rethink, okay, what about this? And what about that? And what do I do? So yes, it is... Uh, uh, it is practical application, but I just don't have time for any more. <laughs> Maybe someday. I think that is so important to stay and keep being a practitioner always. I have administrator certification, but I've never really taken the plunge to be administrator. But um, I remember my high school principal used to always, he used to be a math teacher, and he would always come in and teach like our accounting unit and our economics units and math. And it was to keep his teaching muscles fresh. And he got such joy out of breaking down content for us. And I just loved that because we got to know him in a different way um, as a teacher versus a principal. And I always thought, okay, even if I'm ever a principal, I still want to have a reading group. Like I just always want to have my reading group and learn. Yes, so. yes. And it's interesting because um, COVID has uh, prevented um, um, people coming into the schools. I know teaching has still been going on, but in terms of people coming in, and I really miss that because I love going to schools and modeling. I have so much fun and uh, just connecting with the children. And it's, we'll talk about movement later, but I, um, I often model the movements and show the children. And then I'll be going down the hall. I have this, this trail of children following me practicing. And I always think, wow, you know, look at this people. This is fun. The children want to do it, but uh, but I've missed that with, you know, COVID um, next, I think um, in September, I'll be starting to go back into schools. So yeah, being with those children, children are just so refreshing. Uh, sorry, adults, you're refreshing too, but you know, <laughs> there's nothing like a, a child and that's what we're doing it for. We're doing it for children. So we have to keep our eye on, on our purpose. And well, you really go into are. education in the first place. And if you are not a person who enjoys being around children, you should not be there in the first place. So I think, yeah, you have to kind of get back down to your roots. I feel the exact same way. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the ladder of reading and writing a little bit, because we had previously done our last episode. It's episode seven from season four. And um, we did a little bit of clarifying based on your blog post um, with permission from you, but we would love for you to touch a little bit more about um, why you revised it and, and some of the feedback that you've gotten um, and, and how you can clarify that for us. Okay. Well, um, uh, first of all, thank you for your wonderful podcast uh, uh, about my ladder of reading and writing update. And you did a wonderful job and uh, I just love the way you talked. You're so respectful and you're so insightful. And it was, it was lovely. Uh, I was very honored. You know, I listened to them. Wow. You know, they're talking about my work. That's, that's really neat. It's just very fun for me to, to know that I'm impacting and um, to hear somebody in, interpret my work in, in such a, <clears throat> um, 
an excellent way. I, I appreciated that. So people can go back and listen to that. Um, in the nutshell is that um, I think it's number four, maybe number five. I'm a learner and, uh, and I'm always evaluating um, probably too much, uh, three in the morning. But anyhow, I, uh, I had, I never expected my ladder to be so widely used. And I had done uh, a couple of updates since it really, quote, went viral, uh, but they weren't to the content. And I had, I had been concerned that I wasn't clear enough. And I had made assumptions that people would know certain things or learn very quickly about certain things. And so I wanted to be clearer but it was a really big step because when something is quote viral and other people describe it as that way, I'm still going, oh, <laughs> it's still hard to believe. Uh, and it's a positive viral, often it's a negative connotation, but when something is really out there to change it uh, is a huge, huge step. And so I thought about it for a long time. I just thought I need to be clear because I'm concerned that my message by, might be misconstrued and that actually um, teachers with the best of intentions are not delivering the message. And, and so it's, you know, classroom instruction uh, may be impacted um, in a way that I didn't attend. And so in a nutshell, I, I was seeing a whole lot of whole class instruction, which I thought was interesting because teachers who had been differentiating before were now teaching whole class. And I thought, right now, you were differentiating before, why would you think you need to go to total whole class now? And so I thought, I need to make this clear. And I started to write blogs about differentiation when I just got to the point where I need to write something. But I'm always very careful with how I write. And I, you know, I wanted to um, respect everybody involved. But I started to send the message about differentiation out. Um, almost a year before the update itself, and then was thinking about the update and uh, contacted Jan um, uh, for something else. Well, it was actually connected, uh, but we, um, she agreed to be a sounding board for an update. And I worked constantly for five months. And um, it was so funny because I would send Jan an email and she'd say, okay, I think you're done. And then I'd write back and say, no, what about this word? What about this word? But uh, I am so grateful for Dr. Jen Hasbrook's support and insight. And many of you know, she's been in this field for so many decades and is so experienced in every facet, you know, as a teacher, as a researcher, as a um, person who writes books, gives professional development. So it was a huge gift for me to have Jan working with me. And so over the course of the five months, we just tweaked and tweaked. And sometimes literally we'd sit on and say, okay, we're ready. Nope, nope. And I just kept digging. I kept, I kept writing researchers around the world. What about this? What about this? And so the update um, was the result of a lot of thought, as you as you said in your in your um, earlier podcast, and a lot of angst because I thought, wow, once it's out there, I can't change it for a while. So it really was a big leap. And then 
uh, literally, I was changing it right up to the live reveal. <laughs> uh, I just, I just thought, no, I mean, I could hardly sleep. But uh, I knew the live reveal. Once it was out there, it was out there. And uh, but Jan was just wonderfully, wonderfully supportive. And so once the live reveal happened, and I think Shannon, you were at the live reveal. And um, it was an amazing experience. And if only we had saved it was an past. energy like a it was like how you're when when you're at a learning conference a professional learning conference but it had that energy even on a zoom because i mean the amount of read reading researchers that were there and practitioners it was just it was like that yeah. was odd yeah somebody said it was like the um was it like the Academy Awards red carpet rollout, but it was the latter reading and writing rollout. That's how she described it. She said all these stars were there. And y'all kept having to um, update, you know, how many participants could attend and things oh, like that. Yeah. I got in in the second attendance. I was like so happy. Oh, excellent. Oh, it was, it was an amazing event. Amazing. And, and um, uh, I heard the chat was really interesting. I didn't see it myself because I can't present and look at the chat brain doesn't work that way uh but once the reveal was done it was out and then i've been presenting uh so um teacher feedback i've had so many people first of all so many people had written me before asking for permission and i do have permission guidelines on my website for anybody who's interested in using my work um but after the reveal, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. And I would be writing somebody back and my email would go ping, 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 you know. But eventually I caught up, but I still get emails every day. And um, interestingly, so many people have said, thank you for recognizing the whole range, for making it really clear. Um, they really appreciated my, my clarification in terms of the different needs. This is really about addressing a wide range of needs and people are so happy uh, to have that because that is what teachers see. And uh, one of the things I've said, I think in at least one blog, maybe it's in my blog post um, update. Uh, so if anybody wants to read that, and I think Shannon, Mary, you're gonna post those links on your um, podcast website after, but um one of the things is that um there's a lot of black and white happening in a lot of areas um under the umbrella of reading and writing right now um and one of the um one of the things that i've been concerned about is the potential to box children in based on their background based on um you know where they live uh, based on whether they're in a more minority group. And I keep saying we have research that suggests that some children might be at greater risk because of certain environments, but that doesn't mean they couldn't arrive at school knowing how to read. And we need to be very careful not to expect children because of their background to all need what children in the red need. And I think that's a really important part of this now that is, you know, based on environmental circumstances, 
is in here and I elaborate more on my blog post, but that's really important. And one of the reasons um, that I draw attention to this is that there's uh, a huge focus on equity. And uh, yes, we want equity, but equity means, uh, means offering children what they need based on who they are and based on where they are in their learning. And my background in giftedness and you know, that's a huge part of my doctorate right now is, is studying the current research on giftedness and, and the research in the, I don't know, 25 years since I was first studying it, um, is that for children who are coming from backgrounds that, um, that suggest that they have not had certain experiences and so on, um, and that, that they're, uh, socioeconomic status means that they don't uh, or suggest they're, they, they may be more at risk for not having opportunities outside of school, uh, on the weekend, enrichment activities. School is the place. School is where they need support to move forward. And so we need to move forward, everybody, as quickly as we can. But for those children, if they don't get it at school, they might not have the opportunity to get, to get out of the poverty. And, and in the gifted research, and I've got um, links that I can give you, um, they talk about this. And I have quotes saying, you know, that, that if, we, if we teach everybody the same way and don't provide the opportunities to advance, then our children from poverty may miss out the most. So um, if this is about improving everybody, but sometimes people wonder, well, what about the equity? You know, is it yes. fair to differentiate? And I'd say yes. Uh, Nancy, I wanted to just comment a little bit too, especially as an educational advocate. Um, I am still very often hearing that special education doesn't need to provide anything other than the Ford um, model of service, not the Cadillac of service. And that is so frustrating in this conversation of equity, because um, as many parents um, now understand or often are surprised by how expensive it can be to hire a private tutor or how difficult it can be to even find a tutor that's available or, um, you know, try and get into summer programs. And even some parents I've had more conversations with, well, I feel like we can't miss any more time. We should really get into private school. And the, the cost of tuition for a private school is so excessive and out of many, many, many people's range of even possibility. Um, it's, it's really frustrating. So I think that there's, there's two ends of the spectrum. One, there's children who are gifted and, and it's assumed that they will make these possibilities for themselves. On the other hand, I think that it's also um, assumed that parents will have to just take responsibility um, for, for learners who need um, remediation. And both of those things are really difficult when you're trying to address equity um, across the school. And, uh, you know, as we all know, these pockets that we live in um, are very, very, very different for a number of different reasons. So choosing appropriate curriculum for your children's needs, making sure that um, the teachers are able to actually meet the needs of the children that are there at the school when they come to school on a daily basis. 
it's an exhausting topic, but I think that because it's easier just to talk about the curriculum that you choose, or it's easier to, um, you know, debate this because there's a price tag on it, it can't be left out of the conversation. So I really, I have to commend you for bringing this part into the conversation. I do think it's missing in a lot of topics that we are, we are talking about right now. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I agree, Mary. And I think that I think it is important to talk about it because it defines why we're doing what we're doing and the decisions that we're making. And like for me, I, I agree with everything you said, Nancy, because I've heard the term school dependent children before um, in terms of some students um, who are lacking um, in certain resources in, um, you know, in their environment. And so um, I truly believe that. Um, because I saw that at so many years of being a reading interventionist in a public school. And I would get so upset with my administrators when they would pull me from my reading segments to go sub. And like one time I had to substitute and missed an entire month of like my fifth grade reading segment. And I was trying to explain to my administrators, like these students, like they're about to graduate from elementary school. I'm not going to have any more time with them. Like I cannot miss this this group, like I, I, there are things that I need to work with them on. Like, I understand that it's short-term solution. You need me to sub in this class, but these students are school dependent. And if they don't get it now, when are they going to get it? Like their <laughs> middle school teacher is not going to teach them phonics and some other things that they need, you know? Yeah. So that's, we, I, I feel like um, when I'm saying it's the why, because it's, I've made certain decisions based on my belief about that and my, um, passion and fervor to provide those students with equitable instruction that they good deserved because reading is a right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. And I think it, it also, all of this um, um, is related to the uh, emphasis now on early, early, early. And we, we know that in the world of um, reading research that, um, we, we want to be screening early and um, we aren't screening for dyslexia, we're screening for who is at risk and then we teach based on risk, but we know that if we, if we start early, ideally in preschool, uh, but if not, if they're not in preschool, then for sure kindergarten to uh, find out uh, uh, where our children are and then monitor where they are and so that we don't have so many teachers I mean apart from the fact that our children deserve it but so many teachers in the upper grades are struggling because we have not been doing that so the proactive approach is is really really important and I'm hoping that with all the changes happening that we're going to see the results uh, as as children grow, it's going to take quite a while to hit those upper grades if we're really, but we need to focus on proactive. And then if we screen, we are also going to find out who is already reading. And so those, uh, and I think we need to be careful with our screeners because um, we're over screening in some cases and we actually, uh, need to be careful that in particularly the dark green, we don't overscreen because we actually don't have the research to support that if they are missing certain things, if they're already reading and they're not 
um, performing as well on our phonemic awareness tests, that may not mean that they need phonemic awareness instruction uh, because uh, we just don't have the research to support that. And I think we really need to be careful. So what I want to say to teachers is you may hear things and think this is really black and white and be really careful and think of the range. And I know I, I will be writing more about it, but um, there, there isn't the research on advanced readers that we need. And so we need to put together based on what we know already. And uh, there are people uh, suggesting that we could be delaying advanced readers by expecting them to learn in the way that a child in the red uh, area might need. Um, they don't need all the steps and they may not, you know, and my own children are an example. Uh, my own children were reading before school and went into French immersion and, you know, I just do the basics of French. Uh, so they, it wasn't like they had a home environment with French. And uh, in kindergarten, our son was in this, I'll tell you this little story. <laughs> um, the kindergarten teacher was doing Peter and the Wolf and the children were acting out Peter and the Wolf. And so if you can imagine the, you know, the school gym with the stage and these little kindergarten children are up there doing Peter and the Wolf while they're all doing different things, but they've got their costumes and it was quite hilarious. But anyhow, uh, the narrator for Peter and the Wolf was my son. And he was down on the floor with a microphone reading the story of Peter and the Wolf in French. And he had had no French instruction at home. I didn't know anything about any of this at that point. I just did what we all want parents to do. I read to my children and, you know, I kept thinking I should be doing more and I was too busy because the children were 20 months apart. And, um, you know, I just, I just kind of coped with every, every day, like a lot of parents. But my son was reading this with extremely good French articulation, the French words. And uh, afterwards, the teacher told me that other teachers were coming up and saying, what are you doing in your kindergarten classroom? And uh, what she had done was she had embraced our son's reading abilities. She just ran with it and gave him all these opportunities and uh, she differentiated in a huge way in that kindergarten class. And I'll always be appreciative. And then what happened was he went to grade one and he had a teacher who did the opposite. And he actually wanted to quit school in grade one. He was so unhappy because his teacher just squashed his love of learning. And so as a parent, I've been through um, through that. And I know, you know, there are teachers, many, many teachers who are doing what our son's kindergarten teacher did. And I laud you. And uh, she was really out there at the school, but oh, what a great experience. And um, unfortunately, we're having to work um, to educate teachers like his grade one teacher who, who um, just squashed him because she didn't know what to do. 
And so, you know, started the beginning of the year saying, oh, he's so wonderful. He's helping all the students. And at the end of the year, oh, he keeps getting out of his chair to talk to other students. And I thought, wait a sec now, you know, make up your mind. So I've, I've been in the shoes of parents. But I think that differentiation has been part of my um, thoughts and and thinking and I don't want to say beliefs because I've read the research on it um, you know for a long time and this is where we really really need to support teachers I think and I know it's not easy sometimes but it's it's kind of like you said um, Shannon we just have to we have to do it we have to figure out how to do it how do we make this happen instead of saying oh it's too hard we can't do it so there are lots of different ways that you can differentiate but um, this this just in order to serve everybody, and I use that word very intentionally, serve, we need to support teachers in knowing how to differentiate. Um, Nancy, I have to applaud you for saying all of these things because um, it's particularly interesting to me as some readers or listeners have have heard too that um, I also have a daughter who's now in first grade and she is a very natural reader and in the gifted program. And I sometimes look at her and I think, God, it's very interesting that you gave me this child as I have built my career around helping children who struggle so much. And so I am a person who's constantly reviewing and making sure that, um, you know, children are not missing gaps in their education. And so um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the compacting curriculum, because I think when I was teaching, um, particularly kids who um, uh, it was a little less identified at the time when I had my own um, special education group, but children who are gifted with 2E and, and how compacting can really actually help pique their interest, keep them engaged, um, and also not lose them um, within the curriculum if it's um, things that they can innately kind of absorb through the curriculum. And I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm articulate articulating that well, but if you could just kind of give a little overview, I think our listeners would really enjoy um, hearing about the compacting of curriculum. Sure. And um, I, I had a few things going on in my head when you were talking and some of them have now <laughs> disappeared. Uh, so, so sorry about that. I know. Oh, how that that's goes. okay. No, 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 no. I love this conversation. So it's good. And it's so important. So Let's, um, oh, I know what it was. It was that I just wanted to mention that I think that was part of the, um, the uh, assumption that I made was that people would understand how you can make this so intellectually engaging. And I did that in my own practice. I mean, partly because I get bored really easily. So, you know, I had to find all these cool things about English to teach my students. And I just dove and I had parents at every lesson. That was my model. And, um, and so the parents and the child and I, we would be digging into etymology or we would be talking about the history and, um, you know, the monks or whatever. Um, so I think that is, um, that's always been a part of mine, which, which connects with the 2E in that if you have dyslexia and you're gifted, we really need to work on making it intellectually engaging. First of all, for that group, um, the research um, suggests that when a child is identified as both to be um, gifted and um, dyslexia, let's talk about that first, um, 
the dyslexia becomes the focus and the giftedness is often not even addressed. And actually the research suggests we need to, um, some research suggests, okay, I'm gonna tell you I'm out there. Some research says you've got to address the giftedness first, but that may be, that may be um, uh, important for children who are TUI with other exceptionalities. Um, there isn't a lot of research on young, well, there's practically none on TUI gifted who are preschool to, to grade two and um, who have dyslexia. And so actually what I've been saying in the TUI world is we need to address their giftedness and we need to teach them to read and write because if, if we just address their giftedness, then the longer time goes, they may not learn to read and write. And we know that time is of the essence when you're struggling to read and write. And so we need to address both, but we can do it in an intellectually engaging way. We also can explain to them why we are doing this. If your child is gifted or your student is gifted, explain to them, talk about the brain, show them pictures of the brain. I've done that with my students, you know, and you, um, you, there was a psychologist years ago called Mel Levine who used the word demystify, remember? Okay, demystify, demystify why they are finding it more challenging and what they need. And this is, you know, this is science. Uh, and so then um, with your curriculum compacting with those children, ideally you're going to be compacting in the other areas in which they are strong and, or you're advancing them to another grade. You know, they're going, if they're in grade one and they can do grade three math, then maybe they can go to grade three for the math. And maybe they need tech, you know, um, audio support, you know, technology to support them in doing math. Um, if, if, they're, if they are uh, able to do more advanced um, um, assignments in social studies or science, uh, uh, some of those children will already have the background or learn it really quickly. Then again, either provide them with the technology or, or put them in a group or a pair with an advanced reader. And so they've got cerebral uh, engagement at the same time as support so that their um, reading and writing is not holding them back. So there are lots of ways you can support it. So in terms of gifted um, who are advanced readers, uh, there are other programs that they, so this is not compacting, but there's a, a program called the school-wide enrichment model in reading. And I can give you a link for that to put up on your website. Uh, and it is a research-based uh, program to support advanced readers. And again, twice exceptional who are, are not advanced readers could be supported with technology to to uh, have the um, more enriching opportunities through that. When it comes to curriculum compacting in terms of a scope and sequence for phonics, I have not seen yet anybody with a good compacted curriculum. And it'll depend on your scope and sequence, but I would love if anybody's interested in connecting with me, to help them figure out how to do that. Uh, 
you know, in my non-existent time. I'm very interested in coming up with a, a model because I have not seen it in the gifted world. I have not seen it in the TUI, you know, bridging both worlds. I've not seen it in the world of dyslexia. And what I'm seeing in the world of dyslexia is, you know, is um, the impression that every single phoneme graphing correspondence needs to be taught. And for advanced readers, we don't have the evidence to support that. And could we be delaying them? And actually some research, Carol Connor's research uh, suggests hers, she did research over a long time. Unfortunately, she passed away because she was, I think, going to change differentiation for reading. She'd already done so much research, but wasn't out there yet. But she basically showed in um, some of her research in grade one, if children needed code-based instruction, they did better if they were provided, provided that, but the children who already could decode did better if they were provided with literature-based instruction in grade one. And I've got other research to support the same thing. So even if you're not doing a different program, there are ways you can do it. So as to people say, what about spelling? Uh, well, you know, again, be careful. My children were in French immersion, you know, um, they're great readers. Well, they are already are reading, but they're great writers, great spellers, and they didn't get a lot of instruction in school. And so sometimes when I look at the black and white that I see happening, I think, oh, they might've been delayed if they were held back with every single part of a sequence. So we need to figure this out. And I'm going, you know, right now, if anybody knows anything different, please contact me. I have not seen a well compacted uh, um, model to support that this. So be careful, you know, you might, you might, and that's why with the differentiation approach that I've been recommending, I know a lot of teachers want to have whole class instruction because they just feel comfortable knowing that everybody has been taught it. So keep it really brief, keep it really targeted on a certain component. And if you think, okay, for spelling, I want my advanced readers to know this, um, then you bring in movement and you get them up on movement. You have the advantages of, of the, you know, the, the, the um, getting up out of their seats. And then what you can do is involve your advanced readers in maybe leading, leading the instruction or maybe supplementing. So if you're doing one of the examples that I've used often in my presentations is the word set, S-E-T. And um, in my scope and sequence that I use, uh, I created one. So I had one for PD and for parents and, and for the parent edition of my book, I wanted an example of just where you would start, but I think it's lesson nine. So I'm going, okay, you have the word set and uh, your children are being taught this word. Well, you could actually have your advanced readers go off ahead and create a semantic web for the word set. And it's, it's got, based on my research, it's got one of the most meanings in the English language. So they're going to have this giant semantic map of set and they're going to be engaged in building this and then come and present it to the class because we're not just teaching phonics, we're teaching semantics, we're teaching, um, morphology, which so they'll have setting, I am setting the table and, you know, 
oh, setter, iris setter. Hmm, I wonder if that's connected to the word. You know, you start to get the cerebral engagement of, okay, is setter related to set? And, and you know, you have sets of things and then you could maybe get into um, uh, syntax. Okay, we could set up sets of words. We have verbs and nouns. Those are sets of words. You just go to town with it. Uh, and that's what's intellectually engaging. You can engage your advanced reader in a very simple lesson by offering them the opportunity to extend their learning, contribute, and then get everybody up doing the movement, which, you know, most children in the class, well, I've never seen anybody not like to do it. So that's, that's kind <laughs> yeah. of, oh, I don't know if I Those answered are, all your no, questions. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I think that that example too, of how to extend the learning in a meaningful way, allowing for semantic movement and things like that, and also teaching the class too. So I find, and, and this, you know, obviously is not based on research, it's just anecdotal in my own life, but you know, my daughter um, is always interested in, oh, but why is this word spelled this way? And so we can have lots of meaningful conversations. She is a kid who often asks why and wants to know the why. And I think many gifted kids do. And um, sometimes kids who are also um, not gifted also really need to know the why so that they can see the big picture. So I think that it's one of those places where if you can get the group right and you can get on um, the setting, the, the setting, the setting set for um, kids to be engaged, like, oh, um, so-and-so is talking about, uh, you know, setting the scene and, oh, look how she put those words together. Oh, I can do that. The next time I see that word set, I'm going to start thinking about it in my own brain. And I think that kids are so... Um, used right now to just being told what to do and not truly engaging um, in all their senses when they're when they're taking on a new task. So just a quick example, my daughter was talking about plurals and we love plurals and, and singular um, forms of words and we were talking about all different nouns. And then you know um, I always use um, kind of like a little jingle and I'll say just one singular sensation. And we talked about what singular means. And then we talk about a cheer that we do for plural. And so um, my daughter said this to her teacher and the teacher said, oh, that sounds interesting. Can you bring that to class? So she and I made little visuals and she taught all of the kids in her first grade class when to add ES to plurals. And, you know, I think that not that every parent is going to be able to do that, but every parent is able to figure out what is something that would just interest your child and have that conversation. And then what you hope is that that bridge at school, the teacher can also connect to that too, engage that child and, and take it on because it's those, those types of meaningful learning moments that um, I think we sometimes discount for other learners in the class, because that can be a really powerful thing. I remember when my friend got up and taught us that cheer or, or, Hey, I'm revisiting that, you know, two weeks later, can you tell me what that is again? And can they tell you that again? I think all of those are super meaningful. And I think it's also a really great way to engage your higher level learners um, it, yeah. and all children. So I think I, I love these um, examples that you are sharing. So keep those coming if possible. And also to our listeners, if you have little examples or anecdotes that are similar to this, share them on our social media, please, because I, I think that um, we all can really learn from each other 
this way. So yeah, I I'm loving this. I agree. I really like that example of set and setting and having that, um, the advanced readers like present that semantic web to the class. When you, Nancy, when you were talking about, um, your son's first grade experience, I was flashing back to my elementary school career. I've never been identified as gifted because I always went to private school, but I was definitely a high achiever. And I was the peer tutor every year for my entire school career. And maybe that made me the teacher I am today because I really was able to break down (laughs) the content one-on-one with my peers. However, I think I would have been much more engaged if I'd been given an activity like that where I have to present it to the class and make it engaging and social. And I'd had a couple other peers to bounce off of rather than me just one-on-one always being the peer tutor because I'd already known the content. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's just, a, it's, it's a, it doesn't seem like much, but it's a huge shift where um, your more advanced students could be more engaged because yeah. they're not just constantly in that role of peer tutor, but they're actually, they have a role, a designated role in the class. And it's one that, um, it's not really making them higher than the class or anything because they're just, they're contributing and they're contributing in a way where everything might not even be correct in their semantic web. And you as a teacher need to still provide some instruction and some direction. It's just the appropriate fit for what they need. Yes. And I think that's an important point to not expect them to know everything. And so to coach them and they need to keep learning where they need to learn. So we find their gaps and, and for children who are gifted, if you, if you give them the expectation that they do everything perfectly all the time and know everything, that actually is really hard on them because um, you can't know everything. And when it certain things are are learned, you know, as you go, and so perfectionism is a huge issue uh, that a lot of uh, gifted students are 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 dealing with. So we're providing that support. I think um, giving your students choice. Uh, the other thing about differentiation is we can group in different ways. We can group in personal strengths and interests. And so if we start thinking, we don't always want to group the way the same way if you're differentiating. It's really, really important. And every child has personal strengths and interests. So we need to be really, really careful about, about that. And then they'll be getting together with somebody who's, you know, not necessarily at the same um, um stage of reading and writing but they've got the same interest and they can build that intellectual engagement very early it's amazing how early that they can be building this um oh i know what i was going to say the other thing uh, my interest in in children who have adhd who are gifted they may have dyslexia or they may be advanced readers uh, the research on adhd that I am quoting suggests that in a low stimulation environment, that's when their hyperactivity becomes more pronounced. So they need the stimulation. So the movement is really important. So if you look at the stats that say we have, I don't know, between five, let's say between five and 10% of our children have ADHD. And then you look at the stats that say between 20 and 40%. I've even seen up to 60% of our children with dyslexia have attentional issues. So the movement is really important and, and also novelty. 
And so when we bring in these novel things, I mean, I don't know all the meanings of set. And I've loved learning in and working with students more about words. It's word exploration. And we know the English language is huge. We know words are created every year to add to our language uh, versus the French who have, you know, they don't allow new They have words. one word for good. They have one word for good. Yes, yes. And, and we have, have a page full of synonyms for the word yes, good. Yes, so then we say, well, I know English has more words and I know that you're, you're maybe having to learn more, but wow, look at all the choices you have. And, you know, imagine the French, when they have a new word, the government has to approve it. It has to go through. One of my friends was in France and she said, Nancy, I saw the department for, I forget what it was called, but it's for controlling their language. And isn't that cool? And for gifted kids, they're going, wow. But for all children, you, we've just educated them. We've given some global awareness. You can, I want to call pepper you know you pepper this when I do my movements I'm peppering all the time and uh, so that all these little things and so the more teachers know the more they're going to be able to uh, pepper uh, so learning it is is you know it doesn't happen overnight but I just want to say to teachers it also what is what makes it really interesting that when I learned about the monks and doubling, I thought, oh, that is so cool. And then you're into medieval history. And then, you know, you think about uh, the printing press. And, and I say, uh, one of the things I say gifted children could act up is act out, they could act out the monks, they could act out Gutenberg. And I'm not, you know, maybe, maybe they're not doing it in kindergarten. But remember, our gifted children, are going to be more advanced they might be not just reading at you know three years ahead but cognitively three years ahead so let's not put a, a lid on that and and maybe they could work with somebody else and act out the monks you know oh, should we double or not uh or gutenberg oh you know don't put that in your machine because you know it's going to be a cause a real problem and you don't have to get detailed. And then with the internet, we have images and we can show images. And when I teach about the monks, I go on the internet and I show pictures of the monks and Gutenberg, I show you know images and all of a sudden we've just really, it's just so interesting. But don't think you can do it all at once in terms of learning and you'll never know it all. So um, just be open to the learning adventure, which I think for children who are twice exceptional in dyslexia and twice exceptional ADHD, because we know ADHD is a risk factor for difficulty learning to read. So they may not have dyslexia, but they may not um, learn to read as easily. They could be advanced readers if they have ADHD, but they may have more difficulty with writing because of of um, their executive function demands uh, when it comes to writing. But if we offer them these interesting opportunities, we've just turned it into fun. And I'm all about the fun. <laughs> I love it. I'm, this is such a great conversation. I know that we've mentioned um, your secret code actions a couple of times. Now, can we, can we enlighten our listeners a little bit about, um, about what that product is that you offer on your website. And I have to tell you, I worked, um, I was doing some advocacy for um, a family and they had a, an amazing kindergarten teacher who was using um, your secret code actions 
to, and it was making huge progress in her classroom. I was really impressed. So this summer, um, I am going to attempt to learn these and, and bring them into my instruction um, with my, my students. And so I'm also excited to teach it to parents. So if you could just share a little bit about that um, product that you have too, because I think that sure. it, it branches all throughout. Everybody can be um, benefited from it. All right. I, uh, so I started to use movement. I feel like, I don't know, tell me when we're getting close to the end because I have no idea how long we've been talking about. I'll just keep talking. Never. Bit. We want to uh, keep talking. Okay. <laughs> so I started to use movement about 20 years ago. I'm, I'm very active. I finally have a standing desk. I have two standing desks, two in different parts of the house. And every day I'm um, exercising. I, I've always needed to move. I started to weave movement into my lessons when I was working um, in a clinic with psychologists. Um, I was in the teaching branch of this clinic. They did psych eds and they, you know, helped develop IEPs and so on. And people came there for extra, you know, we'll call it tutoring um, 20 years ago. And a lot of my students uh, had difficulty with attention regulation. Some of them were uh, identified as ADHD, but some, I think, you know, they weren't identified, but they, so many years of failure in school, and it's really hard to focus on things that you've struggled with for so long. So I just started, as I said, I'm all about the fun. I started to bring movement into my lessons and uh, had huge success. And when I decided to do my private practice and learned about dyslexia, which was, you know, over a period of time, I learned about code-based instruction, which I had not learned about, I told you in my BED. Um, I started to adapt what I was teaching. I was using good programs, but sometimes a little dry. And I had students after school evening, weekends, you know, Sunday morning at seven o'clock because that's when the lesson was because the child still wanted to go to hockey or, you know, brownie camp or whatever. So we had um, lessons all over the place. And so I really wanted to uh, try and engage my learners. And so I just brought in the movement I, and started to um, create a movement for every new concept I was teaching. And the children were so engaged and the parents were engaged. And uh, it was so interesting because children, it seemed like they had their favorite movement, you know? And so when I look at my book, I think, oh yeah, they helped me make this. That was so-and-so and that was so-and-so. And finally, one day a parent said to me, Nancy, you need to write a book uh, to show teachers how to do this. And that was before my master's. So in my master's, I dug into the research and there was already a lot of research showing um, that children weren't moving enough and linking movement to learning. Uh, in the last 10 years since my master's, there's been even more. I mean, I bought four books just since Christmas and, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's out there, but we're not getting in into uh, the field of, you know, under reading science. I'm, I'm talking about it. The people who know me know that I'm... I'm saying to researchers, we need to research this because, you know, it's, it's, I think it's um, maybe the secret sauce. So anyhow, that's what I so always say, Nancy, I love that. I say as yeah. soon as if you have done all the things that are written down and all the things that, you know, make it multi-sensory, add yes. the three in place. And yeah. that's the magic wand that people yeah. talk about. And exactly. it, 
it's not, it, there's no, um, you know, there is no magic wand. You just have to keep trying things again and again. But if you can make it multi-sensory, that is the secret sauce. Yeah. And, and that's what our lowest learners need. Children love to move. They're, they're, now, reading is not natural, but moving is, is natural. And I've got you know, a whole presentation on that. So I ultimately did the book, but I actually wrote the book. Then right after I finished, I wrote a book for parents because I really wanted parents to be able to be doing the same thing at home. And uh, so I have both. And it's, it's being used by teachers brand new to this. So it's a great way to learn about the code for those who are new to this, but it's also being used by experienced teachers to enhance their instruction. And we know there's no one perfect program. We're always going to enhance and bring the movement in. And it is, as a teacher uh, using my book actually said to me this week, she said, you know, I don't know what happens in their brain, but you know, if they're reading and they, and they don't know the code and I just start to move, boom, they've got it. You know, she said, it's just magical. It's just amazing. It's also uh, based on the research on ADHD really helps children um, to um, focus more to be up and moving. Um, there's research on gesture uh, suggesting that it reduces the cognitive load. Uh, reduces anxiety. What I want is research showing when and how best to use it. And there are certain things. So I have read research. Um, my book doesn't really get into comprehension strategies. And I would want to be careful about that because I read research that says, if you teach certain things through movement um, for advanced readers, it might delay them because they're already, you know, there are, they don't need those. So it's back to the who needs what, when, how uh, for everything. Uh, but for the code for spelling, and I say when you're up there doing the movement, you're actually peppering clues about morphology. Oh, I'm running. That's a verb. You know, oh, I'm a good runner. I'm a person who runs. And you're peppering. And then you can do things um, um, to do with, well, that actually brought in, you know, semantics. It brought in morphology. It brought in syntax in that one little thing boom uh yeah. you could be doing that and then what you could do is you could actually have your advanced readers go off afterwards and they have to do some writing around this we know that uh some children particularly with adhd i said um writing is um more challenging for them and if they're gifted they really might get frustrated because they think they should be able to do it because they're so good at other things so if we can um create opportunities to start giving them writing opportunities early, then instead of waiting, then we can do that. And maybe they go away and create a sentence. And then there are sentence combining activities, which I didn't put in, in my book. You know, I still have more to write in the future, but the book is really focused on, uh, it really is focused on the phonics, but all the way through, I have clues and alerts about uh, phonemic awareness. I have clues and alerts about orthography, spelling patterns. I have clues and alerts about morphology and syntax and semantics saying, you know, talk about the, the meanings of the word. And, and then at the bottom of each second page, because it's kind of a, you know, each, when you hold it out, it's one, two, they're all linked, if that makes sense, like an A and B of each fold out. Um, I have 
an enrichment activity because I was determined to help teachers know, oh, we want to keep enriching. So our advanced readers, they might go off and look up to see, you know, the, the enrichment activity. Every phoneme graphene correspondence has an enrichment activity. Every graph and every graphene phoneme. So chapter one is phoneme to graphene. Chapter two is graphene to phoneme, because I know some sequences go in one direction, some go in the other, but you ultimately need to know both. And all the keywords, all the keywords align, which you can imagine how long that took me. And then for things like long vowels with lots of options, I have stories that they act out. And then when they want to retrieve their options, they remember the story and it helps them remember what their options are. Because for some children with dyslexia, spelling takes longer to master. And then, so they're writing a word with long E and they're going, oh, you know, I don't think that's right. Well, if you actually can remember a story and the actions and you just write it out on a piece of paper and then their orthographic memory kicks in and they're going, oh, I think it's EA, it's not EE, whatever. So, um, and then I have activities in chapter four for remembering what are called um, the rules or generation, generations, sorry, generalizations. I'm talking too quickly. Somebody put in a chat box recently, you talked too quickly. I don't know. But anyhow, sorry, guys, it's my energy. <laughs> no um, worries. You have high energy. And okay, I think it's yes. really wonderful. So, chapter four rules yeah, and generalizations, ahead. we have activities for those. And then chapter five is taking it to the gym or the playground. So, you get those repetitions unobtrusively. So, that's the nutshell about my book. So, I hope people will look and uh, check it out. I am so excited um, to kind of dive into this because I've, the, the, the four kids that I've been working with just most recently all happen to have processing issues of a variety of degrees. Um, but I have done a lot more wait time and a lot more gestures just as we're kind of going through. And I know that my children need the wait time. And um, if you're not practicing this, especially if you have children who have some processing issues, not speaking and not interrupting their thought flow is critical. Um, but sometimes a visual gesture or um, something can jumpstart what they are looking for. And so, um, you know, it's been really challenging. I think as my career as a teacher, I've progressed, it's much easier for me to keep my mouth shut now. Um, but it was a lot harder at the very beginning. You see a, a kid struggling and you want to immediately correct it. But I really encourage you to give your, your kids a pause, maybe a gesture. And if you're using code actions, then I think that that's probably the most efficient way to get a lot of information across without giving a verbal direction, because you already know that they've had these experiences. They just have to retrieve them. So I think that we do all as teachers need to do a little less talking and a little more allowing our students to think. And I think that this research, excuse me, this resource is exactly what um, can help. And parents too. I often have parents who are really confounded by the idea of what does slow processing mean? And it's not that the information isn't inside that brain. It's a matter of retrieving it in a meaningful way and um, in an efficient way. And sometimes that requires practice turns. And sometimes that requires just an extra beat to allow them to actually get there and think it through. So I think um, if, if we're just gonna kind of like pull this out, here's another little string that you could um, kind of attach to as you're listening to this episode, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, 
anyway, this is so wonderful. Um, Nancy, you have so much wonderful information. I don't really want to stop. I I just, well, well, you sold back. me on oh. secret actions. I'm going to be buying it too, because <laughs> like all season long, we've been diving into these different topics like morphology and digging deeper into decoding, I mean, encoding and things like that. And I've been experimenting with new exercises and practices with my students. And I think this might be what's missing from putting it all together. And so I'm really excited to read this over the summer and then apply it with my students next year. Well, thank you. And it's designed, the concepts are alphabetical because it is not a program. It's designed to enhance Pepper program. <laughs> um, I do have for book owners, I do have a, an example of a scope and sequence because we know some teachers are starting without anything. So I have free downloads, not just a soap and sequence, I have um, printable graphene cards. I, I've even thrown in some controlled text for, for children who need that controlled text, uh, because I created it. And finally, I just threw it in as a free download because I was so busy. I thought, you know what? I'm there. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's not perfect. We it's will link perfect. all of that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we'll just put it from my website. And then, mm -hmm. and then it is for book owners. But the other thing um, I wanted to say is, oh, yes. So um, not everything is in there because I, I created an enlarged font. And my rule of thumb was if it didn't fit, it didn't get on because um, a lot of teachers just get overwhelmed by big texts and I wanted it to be easy to read. I wanted to say, okay, if, if you're stuck and you know, your children are being sick all night and you're looking for something to teach, you know, quickly go in, there will be something there that you could teach that day that um, would be based on, you know, what we're calling the science of reading that, that um, you could do. And it's just, I tried to make it teacher. For, I wrote the book I wished I'd had. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just, I'm hoping, I mean, I hear from people, it's just to help and people do say it just, it just seems to be the secret, but I'm, I'm reading all the research on it, on, on this connection with movement. And, and even the fact that when we're, oh, yeah, um, the, the slow processing speed, um, when children are allowed to get up, and move. And, uh, some of the research is suggesting they can think more clearly. If we act, ask them to sit, their brain can't function. So we need to, even if they're just walking around. And so back to differentiation, we need to manage our classrooms, which is, um, I'm going to give you um, the differentiation resource that I recommend, which I think is um, I don't recommend, as you know, uh, from today, a lot of programs, but um, Vicki Gibson's classroom management um, differentiation uh, materials, I really like because what she's done is she's given a framework for not just reading, but for the classroom to teach math and science and everything. And this is what we need. This isn't just about reading. It's about improving um, instruction, teaching to needs for all subjects. And so I really like uh, her work. So if you can't find the link for that, let me know. And I will give you- I've never back. seen that. Is that like use more in Canada or am I just out no, of the loop? She's, she, Vicky's in Texas. And okay. um, her, her materials are published by um, Benchmark PD Essentials. Mm, and I just really like, she's, she's uh, got a, uh, a school has a school and she is working on teaching these concepts 
to preschoolers. And what I love is that all of what I'm reading relates to this uh, because we're helping children build executive function skills. And if they don't have those skills, then it's really hard for them to get the academic skills. So I want teachers to differentiate. I want them to collaborate with each other. This isn't about one classroom um, just doing it. It's about communication. And if you're a leader, leader watching this, I really encourage you to, to you know, grab the reins because um, it's harder for a teacher to do it all in one classroom. So we need um, different, you know, grade one, all the grade one classrooms, or maybe it's one and two working together. And then teachers find their niche some, you know, it's just amazing in my experience in consulting for schools that teachers find, oh, I really love working the advanced readers. And then somebody else, oh, I just want to work with those, you know, children with dyslexia. And you just find out who has their niche and make everybody know it. And we haven't touched on it much today, but as we've been having this conversation, this thoughts have been running through my mind is that because it is the ladder of reading and writing and that the students have differentiated needs in those two different areas, that they might be light green in something and, you know, in reading, but they might be more in the yellow or the orange for the writing or vice versa. And so we really do need to, um, that's why you have that purple arrow on the updated ladder that we have to make data informed, informed decisions where we're really listening to them read, looking at their spelling, looking at their writing samples to make those instructional decisions. Yes. And Jan is the queen of data in my mind. She's, uh, she's got some great information out there, web um, webinars and so on. I agree. And the writing, uh, again, for the, our, our gifted kids, they, you know, I've got research saying that they, um, they struggle with this because they, they're not used to, they're not used to not doing everything easily. And writing is not natural either. And writing is uh, one of my books, Steve Graham's and, um, Oh, I think it's Barbara Harris. Um, in their foreword, they quote somebody, and it's a great quote from somebody way back saying, uh, writing is the mental equivalent of digging ditches. <laughs> and I love that. Whenever I'm doing my assignments for my doctoral program, I think, yeah, I feel like I'm digging ditches. Uh, but um, it, writing is not easy for many people. And so when you add either ADHD or dyslexia or some other, you know, lack of exposure to writing, it makes it more difficult. But we need to start early, you know, we need to get, uh, have our children printing letters in preschool. Um, and uh, there's more and more research on that, the link between um, early writing uh, and learning to read lots of research about that. So I want to encourage teachers don't hold off. We need to be doing that. We need to open that in a fun way early. And, and so we don't get the blocks because the blocks, you know, they build up quickly. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> We've covered a number of amazing topics today and I'm really, really grateful for it. Like your experience, like we said, we, it's so lovely. You just have such a wealth of knowledge and you've touched on so many topics that Shannon and I are passionate about all the way around, because I think that's it is that when you look at reading and writing and literature, um, literacy instruction as a whole, there's so many vast components and we want to make sure that we're not leaving them out. And, and I think also, um, 
the era that we come from um, when we were in school, we just didn't learn all of the nuances and the new techniques. And so I, it just like many other educators, were really interested in in finding out what what can I do? I need to build up my bag of tricks. And so thank you so much for all of the insight that you've provided today um, and, and continuing to provide. And on just one last note, I would just like to personally be, be on behalf of Shannon and I, thank you so much for your professionalism um, in how you um, have approached revisions to your projects, how you really raise the bar for professionalism and asking people to reach out directly um, for your work and clarifying statements and, and making sure that we truly are on the same page um, as professionals. And I think that elevates our profession altogether. So thank you very much for that. And also thank you for the time that you've spent with us today sharing all of your knowledge. Uh-oh, all of a sudden you've frozen. Can you hear us now? Yes. Okay. We yeah, almost I, made it through. Oh, no, we're, we're good. We're good. I agree with Mary. We, we talked, um, you mentioned a, um, a phrase sometimes, the facets of structured literacy. I've heard you say that, and I really think that's what we've done, is just gone over the facets of structured yeah. literacy around and around today, because we've talked about yeah. phonology, orthography, orthography, I mean, morphology, yeah. syntax, and semantics. And um, we're going to link to your, you know, sort of primer to structured literacy as well. Oh, we forgot about that too. Yeah, but you've peppered you. that in in all of your discussion um, today with just some of the little examples that you've given. So very yeah. enriching discussion. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I was glad to contribute. And I guess going through all these different things shows it it's all interrelated. And, and then we want to meet the needs of our students with an interrelated approach. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Nancy. Take good care and don't be a stranger on our show. <laughs> Rightio.